tonight. Pink that many of you may be familiar with, just maybe by a show of hands. How many of you are familiar with Arthur Pink and that name means anything to you? Most, not quite all. So I want to, I've always found in my life um, biography to be especially encouraging. It is a way for us to put ourselves into a situation understand the events and see how other people handle them. To me, it seems to be a unique way to benefit from history, is understanding how others, we can learn from their strengths and also their weaknesses. And uh, I I found this, uh, Arthur Pink has been one of my favorite authors for many years, and, and in the current times in which we live, in which there's much confusion of face. There's much opposition to Christianity and the things of the gospel. I think he uh, provides, in many ways, unfortunately, a negative example about what not to do, uh, even though he had many positive traits that we can look at. And one of the tensions that Mr. Pink wrestled with was from 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5, talking about that in the last days perilous times would come, where they would, verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. And so a call there for us to separate from certain people. And then also uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, another relatively familiar text that tells us, In verse 16 and 17, verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So another call to separate from certain people. But then over in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, a familiar passage not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So as we see the times in which we live, and however you might view them, there's a certain part of us, I'm sure, that when we see these times, think, you know, I would like to just turtle up, end up, you know, kind of keep to myself, isolate a little bit from everybody and just stay in my lane and mind my own business. And yet there's a warning that that isn't the, necessarily the proper approach to do in these times, but even to be on the offensive and continue to be assembling, but then also declaring the gospel to those in desperate need. And so Arthur Pink has been a good example of that, uh, maybe a negative example of that, uh, because many in these times are wondering, what is the appropriate response? Uh, How should I live in these times? There's a a 
modern book out. It's called The Benedict Option, and it advocates for more of a withdrawal from society, more of the monastic life, more of, you know, it's written after the Benedictine monks and their monastery and how they approach spirituality. And so, as I mentioned, the life of Arthur Pink kind of warns us of the danger of retreat. The danger of retreat. In Hebrews 13 and verse 13, one of the verses that the Pinks, him and his wife, took to heart after facing a number of rejections was in Hebrews 13, 13. Let us go, therefore, go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. And so the Pinks adopted that motto of outside the camp. That was how they viewed their life and ministry, was we are living outside the camp. Now, the Pink, Arthur Pink lived, just to give you a frame of reference, he was born in 1886 and died in 1952. So, not that long ago, but at the turn of the 20th century, uh, he uh, uh, lived through that period. Uh, as I mentioned, Mr. Pink has been one of my favorite authors for many years. Years ago, when I was living in Oregon, my wife made one request when we moved to Oregon, is that she wanted to be in Michigan for Christmas every year, which I made that concession, uh, not realizing how, what a, how far that is, maybe, or how long it would take to drive, and so I made that agreement, and my wife at 40 years of age, has never missed Christmas Day at her parents. And I think I get some special reward in heaven for facilitating that. But one of the times, I, what would happen is I was pastoring, I didn't have the time. She wants the whole month of December, because her birthday's on December 7th, and so she, we need to celebrate our birthday. In, I mean, you, you can't celebrate a birthday if you're not in Michigan. And so she would often, that was her request, is if I could have my birthday in Michigan. She just started extending the trip each time. And so I would wait until the week before Christmas or when I had time, uh, and I would fly by myself. And my mother-in-law would fly out and help drive them all back, or my father-in-law and drive them all back. And, and then I just had to usually drive them the other way back out to Oregon. But... Uh, one uh, time I, was, I spent the night at a church member's house on a Sunday evening. They were going to take me to the airport in the morning. And, and uh, he, he had an appreciation for Arthur Pink, and so we were sharing it. And he asked me, have you ever read his biography by Ian Murray? And I said, no, I hadn't. Oh, you've got to read that. So he gives me the biography. And, and so uh, the next day, I, you know, that night I'm reading it, the next day. And so I get to my, one of my connections and I'm sitting down, I get to the gate, you know, where I'm supposed to be, and I got a couple hours, so I, I sit down, and I'm reading his biography. And I'm sitting at the gate, and just I'm just immersed in this thing, enjoying it, and, and uh, something kind of triggered, and I kind of looked up like, I wonder what time my, my flight is taking off, and I looked over, and they were closing the door. And I'm like, no! So I went up there like that. That's my flight. I, I, here's my. I got my boarding pass. I'm, 
And they're like, no, once that, once that door is closed, it's done. That the, the plane door is closed, the gate door is closed, you're going to have to buy a new ticket. So I missed my flight reading Mr. Pink's biography. I would encourage you to read it. It only cost me a few hundred dollars to rebook a flight, and I'm not bitter. So Mr. Pink, as I mentioned, lived at that time in the early 20th century. He lived, obviously, through the Great Depression and two world wars. And yet even in those times, Mr. Pink was an author who wrote a monthly periodical, a monthly newsletter, where he would have about six articles that were typically all expository, and he would keep each, every month, he would give the next installment of uh, those works. And even through the Great Depression and two world wars, for over 20 years, he never missed an article, never missed a publication, publishing it himself, uh, typing it. His wife helped type it, and they would print it and mail it. His circulation, ironically, never reached more than 500 people. And they would send just a token payment, and that was how they uh, lived throughout their life. Incidentally, after he died, it exploded. And he, they began taking these series that he did, putting them all together in a book, and sold hundreds of thousands of copies. But he never saw any of that until he was in glory. Uh, spiritually, he lived in the aftermath of the downgrade controversy that you maybe have heard from Mr. Spurgeon in the United Kingdom. He was raised, there's a dichotomy in his upbringing, he was raised in a very strong Christian home. They were very uh, strict, uh, Bible reading, Sabbath observing, very faithful family. And yet, as a young man, uh, Mr. Pink got involved in Satan worship and was a member of the Theosophy, which was a spiritist mysticism religion, and was even uh, one of its speakers. And so one evening when he uh, was coming home from one of their meetings, his father quoted to him Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And I don't know uh, what spirit his father spoke that in. You know, as a parent, you can use scripture in a variety of ways with your children. Some edifying, some less. But regardless, uh, that stuck him. And he went to his room upstairs and stayed there for several days. And as the Lord was dealing with him and came out a few days later, never ate, never came out of his room as a Christian. And so I wonder, I guess the point I take from that is not to underestimate I mean, you would think if your child was in Satan worship and was a speaker, a leader, he was actually uh, tabbed to possibly be one of the up and coming, they were going to send him to India to, be, to promote it there even further, that you would think, man, there is no hope for this child. And yet by speaking one word of scripture, that's why I try to put my, like, how did he... How did he say that? 
that he was converted. So he had a speaking engagement at their society where 900 people would attend. And Mr. Pink preached from Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes. Needless to say, not a warm reception. Uh, and that was the end of his involvement in this uh, society. But in many ways, that event foreshadowed his ministry and how unpopular it would be. Even though it was very expositional, he was very lonely for the next four decades. In 1909-1910, he went to the U.S. to attend Moody Bible Institute. He attended an initial summer term and never finished the six-week term before accepting a pastorate in a congregational church in Silverton, Colorado. He was there from 1910 to 1912, so just all of his pastorates, there's five or six of them, never lasted more than about two years. And it was during this time that his health, and as well as coming to Baptist convictions, prompted his resignation, and so he determined to head out to that bastion of conservative, conservatism, the state of California. And so he moved to California and pastored there in 1912 and 13, then moved back to Kentucky where he met his wife in 1915 to 1917, and then North Carolina in 1917 and 18, and never made it very long in one place very long. Finally, he went to Australia. They boarded, him and his wife boarded. Uh, there was about a seven-year gap there where he was focusing more on writing, which I'll come back to. And he had two pastorates in Australia from 1925 to 1928. He was also involved in tent meetings and preaching revival services, which we'll talk about. But each of these fields of ministry dried up. Uh, very early in his ministry, he, wrote, he began writing. He wrote three books, The Divine Inspiration of the Bible, The Redeemer's Return, and then each a year later, in 1918, he wrote The Sovereignty of God. How many of you have read The Sovereignty of God? Many of you. It was foundational for me, coming to embrace and understand more thoroughly the, uh, well, needless to say, that wasn't widely accepted or appreciated, and it began closing doors of ministry for him. And when challenged on that, uh, it seems quite evident he wasn't the most personable individual. Uh, he was very much, this is what the Bible says, and that's, is there any further discussion? And if you disagree with me, then I leave. Um, probably not ideal. Uh, so as he developed his unpopular theology, just continued his writings. And so you can kind of, because of the precision of which he was so diligent, you can follow, unlike maybe other authors, the development of his theology uh, from his early years. And he, as he uh, initially was a dispensationalist, and that was where a lot of his speaking engagements were, his Calvinism kind of shut that down. And then his departure from 
uh, dispensationalism uh, kind of shut the rest of the doors that were open uh, for him. And so during that period, uh, as I mentioned, uh, after his final pastorates in South Carolina, as far as in the States, the Pinks concluded that their lives were to be lived outside the camp. Outside the camp. And so in time, they would move to almost complete solitude. They moved to the Outer Hebrides, which are islands in the UK, in the north of Scotland, that are very unpopulated. And uh, to the town of Stornoway, Scotland, where they didn't even speak the local language. There was a Gaelic language there that they didn't even speak. And so they lived in a town that was small, there was no people, and they didn't speak the local language and had really no interaction with anybody, even in the town. But there he had his writing ministry and would study 12 hours a day, six to seven days a week, uh, and briefly attended uh, various uh, churches previously before moving there. But they lived there for the last 12 years of his life from 1940 to 1952. As I mentioned, his, his studies in the scriptures periodical never had a great circulation. He never really tasted any form of success. It was basically just enough to, to live very meagerly and to produce the next journal article and mail it out and pay for the postage. And so in looking at the life of Arthur Pink, there's several influences that I just want to look at briefly that in many ways kind of contributed to who he was. Uh, one of them was revivalism, Calvinism, dispensationalism, denominationalism, individualism, biblicism, and even monasticism. And so as we look at his life, I want to look at just those breakdowns of how he, the anomaly that he ultimately became. So the influence of revivalism, as I mentioned, he would, uh, in his preaching, place a high priority on prophecy. What ultimately drove a lot of the revivalism of that day was prophecy conferences. And so him and Harry Ironside and Gabeline and a couple other of those uh, preachers would gather and have nightly meetings for two weeks at a time, and then go to another town, set up a tent, and often would have crowds over a thousand people gathering on a weekly, uh, a weeknight uh, for two weeks in a row, and experience preaching, and uh, creating quite, quite an environment or expectation of his spirituality. As I mentioned, as he formed different convictions, uh, he ultimately, uh, those doors of opportunity closed. But in many ways, I think that had a negative effect upon his outlook on Christianity. Because imagine the, the buzz of preaching to crowds of 1,200 people on a, on a nightly basis. And the enthusiasm and the energy of that. And then going into a a pastorate where you have maybe 50 people. And he said at one point uh, when he was pastoring in South Carolina, he was continuously looking for another door of opportunity 
And he said, here at Northside, this was in a letter, I speak on the average, even on Sundays, to not more than 50 people. And I yearn to get out into some other field where I can reach a greater number. A greater number of hungry, needy souls. Last month I was the speaker at the Harrisburg Circuit Bible Conference and my experience there of speaking to larger audiences only served to intensify my longing. Now as a preacher, there's a part of you that understands that. right? That there's this desire to... You know, especially a young preacher, you're expecting, you know, probably going to be multi, uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle Part 2. And once I begin speaking, it's just going to flourish and grow. But let, this is why I say that during times of decline, we need to recalibrate our expectations and not just expect that success is measured in a bursting, bursting at the seams uh, uh, audience. So as he went through this phase, I'm suggesting that maybe that contributed to his lack of involvement in a local church. And so he takes to his uh, writing the studies in the scriptures. And then the influence of Calvinism on his spirituality. He wrote a popular book, but most people who read it didn't like it. At that time, 1918, it was published. He... They asked him if he would just take out unpopular subjects like divine reprobation. And he said, well, why would I take it out if it's in the Bible? You know, meaning the subject. And so it really uh, worked against him. There's some aspects of the book that uh, people have said lean, maybe hyper-Calvinistic. And then he kind of revised a little bit before we read the edition that you and I uh, have read. Um, but Mr. Pink was not a hyper-Calvinist. He actually had a struggle with the hyper-Calvinist in Australia because he emphasized very clearly uh, the doctrine of election and the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That God is sovereign. There is no debate, argue. Uh, there's nothing we can say, even as our scripture reading, of what God did with Joseph and how he used him and gave him a dream and told him what was going to happen. Who thought when you buried him in a pit, thought about killing him, and sold him into slavery, that he would one day rule the world and his whole family would bow down to him. And yet he had advocated strongly for man's responsibility that God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And so he saw no uh, unnecessary or unbiblical tension but he just believed that it needed to be upheld. And so when he went to Australia, he was involved with, initially, the Baptist Union were holding these revival meetings that he was preaching at. And Mr. Pink, in his fashion, would preach on such popular topics as election and predestination. And uh, very quickly, that led to conflict and 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 uh, meetings to discuss it, in which they agreed to separate. And then he ran into uh, strict and particular Baptists, with whom he most closely aligned, and he began a pastorate there. But they re rejected, a controversy arose over the free offer of the gospel. 
that whether you could freely offer someone and tell them to repent and believe the gospel, look to the Lord Jesus Christ and live, they believe that only if they are under conviction or only if you see the first evidences or only if they're elect can you genuinely give them that offer. And so this led to a a division and Mr. Pink separated from the church and then there was as true Baptist history, Baptists multiply by division. That's how we do things. And so there was a division in the church, and 27 members separated off and uh, formed a new church and called Mr. Pink as their pastor. And then uh, he abruptly resigned. And this, I think, gives us a little insight into his perfectionistic uh, personality is he abruptly resigned after further reflection because he questioned whether the starting of the church was done in a properly biblical manner. And so no real interaction, no discussion, just that's it, uh, I resigned, I'm done. And so there, was, there, there seemed to be, and again, I'm a, I'm a fan, I, I think there's a key and Loving your neighbor is that you treat them as you would want to be treated. I think that still applies if they're still alive or if they're dead. Uh, And so I don't want to be overly critical of of the man. But it seems like he didn't have an understanding or an appreciation for how to deal with disagreement. How to deal with engaging someone in a patient, gentle, deliberate uh, manner and try to lead them forward lead them into the truth, lead them to understand what the Bible says. His approach was, let me read this to you from the Bible. Do you agree with this or do you disagree? Well, if we disagree, well, then this we need to part company. And um, certainly there is a time, that's why I mentioned the verses, and we'll look at those in just a minute, uh, that were in tension that, yes, the Bible does tell us there's a time for separating, But then it also exhorts us to continue, as we see the day approaching, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so, uh, next is the influence of dispensationalism. I won't go into all of that that means. Um, uh, You can ask Pastor Rick and he'll give you a full uh, breakdown of all of that. But he wrote an early book called The Antichrist which was a culmination of articles that he did over a 10-year period, but later changed his position, and so it created some hostility with the dispensationalists. This will give you a flavor of the temperature by which he spoke. This is a direct quote in reference to it. He said, Such teaching is a reckless and irreverent handling of the word, which has produced the most evil consequences in the hearts and lives of many, not the least of which is the promotion of a pharisaical spirit of self-superiority. Consciously or unconsciously, dispensationalists are, in reality, repeating the sin of Jehoiakim, who mutilated God's word with his penknife. Jeremiah 36, 23. So don't you feel encouraged this evening? And so as he approached, in his view of... uh, spirituality, he would often, as you read his writings, decry apathy, worldliness, um, 
And like I said, you can see kind of his little bit of a negative Nancy personality bleeding in uh, through his writings. And it led him to retreat into almost entire isolation. One of the things that is exposed is that uh, Mr. Pink was convinced, and this was some of the influences of his early theology, of the impending doomsday. That he was fully convinced that we are in the last hours of the last days. And I think he provides us a warning about having an over-realized eschatology. That we over-apply, that we don't look at the newspaper and look at the election results in the last couple weeks and then say, well, surely the world is coming to an end. I think we can see the day approaching. I think we know there are signs of the times. But he was fully convinced that he just needed to hang on in a bunker, basically, and had a little bit uh, of that um, influence. Obviously, he lived through the Roaring Twenties, and there may have been uh, cause for alarm, um, but his response to spiritual decline, immaturity, and worldliness was complete isolation. Was complete isolation. The irony of this is that if you follow church history, that during the time that the Pinks lived in Stornoway, Scotland, up in the remote island, the Isle of Lewis, uh, was in this period in the late 1940s, during which time a revival broke out. And as recorded in church history, I just watched a, a video uh, the uh, Reformation Heritage Books put out uh, with several, um, it's a huge ordeal on revival and has a lot of solid guys, Dr. Beakey, um, uh, probably 10, 15 people that you would recognize. I can't think of Steve Lawson, just several guys. And they, one of the, they highlight various revivals and the last revival they recorded was in 1949 on the very island that Arthur Pink is living on. But he's not attending church, he's not interacting with anybody, and doesn't even know the revival is taking place. I just thought that was quite ironic, that at a time when he thinks there is, it's all dead, we just need to retreat to our bunker, that God was doing a revival where thousands of people, and I shouldn't say hundreds of people, were being converted they were coming under, just as they were doing their work, were coming under conviction of sin, and they were going to look at, going to the churches to look for Christians and, and asking how to escape the wrath to come. And in the documentary, they account of, of hundreds being converted, but as I mentioned earlier, Mr. Pink didn't even speak the language. He wasn't attending church. They, they had one account of where they were going to the sheriff's department because they heard that one of the police officers was a Christian and they were under such conviction that they just wanted to know how to escape it. And I'm sure you have that all the time here, Pastor Rick, where uh, they're knocking the doors down. But it shows the contrast of while you're fully convinced this is going on, on the same remote island. I mean, it would be like living... Um, in the UP or on maybe one of these remote islands in Michigan, uh, and, and you're bunkered down in your little 
hutch and revivals breaking out all around you and you're oblivious to it. So I just thought that was, was interesting. <clears throat> Mr. Pink would often cite the text that I gave of 2 Timothy 3.5 to justify his isolating actions. He was enough of a, 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 a Bible believer expositor that he believed that his actions were biblical. But it seems that he over-applied the text to a universal rather than a local application. And what I mean by that is, when we read 2 Timothy 3.5, it describes certain people who would be wicked. And as it says, let me read it again, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Well, he saw everybody falling into that category. Again, I think a little bit of a negative Nancy or a Debbie Downer and, and just universally applied that because he saw he was obviously a pillar of spiritual discipline. Uh, studying hours a day, there's one point I'll mention where he, he alluded to reading over one million pages of biblical and theological literature. And this was in his midlife. He's about in his 40s at that time. Reading over a million pages. So certainly was well read. Um, but you don't have anybody that you can fellowship with. Anybody. Another possible problem of that application is if you look in chapter 4 of this same book to 2 Timothy. And chapter 2 is it tells us how to prepare and what is a preacher to do? In chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But what should we do? Well, what does he say? Do the work of an evangelist. If they're rejecting it, you don't stop. You just continue being faithful to the end. And so it seems that his application, even in, and this is a danger of proof texting, it's a danger of us using Scripture to justify our behavior when there, we should be able to have in a multitude of counselors safety to make sure that we're not uh, over-applying a certain text of Scripture. I think a more pertinent text to Mr. Pink would be Hebrews 10.25. As you see the day approaching, what should we do? Well, he tells us what not to do, which is to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. And so I went through Mr. Pink's writings just because it fascinates me, and looked at his early writings and his commentary uh, on and what, how he wrote on uh, Hebrews 10.25. And he said this, this call, referring to Hebrews 10.25, is not directed toward Christians separating themselves from their fellow Christians. That's early in his life. That's not what it's telling you to do, which I think I would agree, I agree with. He says, how could it be? Scripture does not contradict itself. God's word explicitly says, and he's 
quoting 2 Corinthians that I read in 2 Timothy, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. But the same word which tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together commands us to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, Ephesians 5.11. God forbid that his people should be found helping forward the plans of the prince of darkness. But unfortunately, a few years later, about 10 to 15 years later, in his commentary on Hebrews, you can go and read his commentary on Hebrews 10.25. And he begins to explain away what he had said earlier and says this, If a professing Christian forsook the Christian churches and became a Mohammedan, he would disobey this verse. So he's saying the application of this is apostasy, is to totally apostatize and become a Muslim. But for one who puts the honor of Christ before everything else, to turn his back upon the so-called churches where he is now so grievously dishonored is not a failure to comply with its terms. So he's basically saying, for me to totally separate is not the problem because I'm not apostatizing. Well, and I would agree he didn't apostatize, but what happens if the average believer forsakes the assembling of themselves together for long? What effect does that have on their perseverance? Obviously a very negative effect. And he goes on to explain that, but I won't uh, take the time uh, through all of that. And so it reveals, and then at the end of his life, he defends this even further. He says at the end of his life, being not unequally yoked together. This applies first to our religious or ecclesiastical connections. Now listen to the spirit of this statement. How many Christians are members of so-called churches? Did you hear that? He said that in the previous one. But do you see the so-called churches? Now again, what do you think he would do in our day? You understand what I mean? I mean, we're talking early 20th century where there was guys like Machen and Lloyd-Jones and F.B. Meyer and, and solid guys, Gerhard Voss, the people who, you know, had all the Dutch influence uh, here in West Michigan. He says, um, where much is going on which they know is at direct variance with the word of God, either the teaching from the pulpit, the worldly attractions used to draw the ungodly, and the worldly methods employed to finance it or the constant receiving into its membership of those that give no evidence of having been born again. Well, Mr. Pink, we can top that. We don't even have membership anymore in most churches. He says, believers in Christ, listen to this, who remain in such churches are dishonoring their Lord. Should they answer... Well, practically all the churches are the same, and were we to resign, what could we do? We must go somewhere on Sundays. 
Such language would show they are putting their own interest before the glory of Christ. And here's the money quote. Better stay at home and read God's word than fellowship with that which his word condemns. That's how where he landed at the end. Well, what if people had adopted that mentality? What if that had been the mainstream approach to it? Where would Christianity and the church be today? If it truly imbibed that, there wouldn't be any, right? And so, as much as I appreciate, um, let me give you one more, a letter he wrote. He says, my earnest advice for you is to have little or nothing to do with the people of the religious world today. They cannot help you spiritually, and where they help not, they are bound to hinder. Be much in prayer. Now, Now listen to this. But be much in prayer and on your guard against a holier-than-thou attitude. Have you ever met anyone who had more of a holier-than-thou attitude? That he was unable to attend church anywhere? In the U.S., in Australia, in the United Kingdom, was unable to fellowship with anyone. And I like the guy. <laughs> if we are not very watchful, separation soon learn, leads to self-righteousness. On the other hand, association with empty professors soon corrupts and paralyzes true spirituality. You understand? This is why I say the influence of monasticism and being a monk is that's the same influences is why they separate in a monastery and why they have no earthly possessions and why they don't is because that is tainting and will ruin your spirituality. Prayer, reading, and meditation will do far more for your soul with God's blessing on the same than attending meetings and being active in Christian service. Well, I would say it's not either or. Why don't we try both? Why don't we try prayer, meditation, and study of the word and be involved in the church? I think that would be uh, wonderful. Another contrast to Mr. Pink, as I mentioned, the revival, is a man by the name of Dr. Murray. Are any of you familiar with John Murray, Dr. John Murray, a handful? He wrote the the book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, very thorough treatment. Uh, He was a Westminster uh, professor of uh, systematic theology in Westminster for for decades, very well known. But in his life, with all of his intellect, experience, he was a theologian, author, seminary professor, when he moved back to Scotland in his later years, kind of retirement, uh, he was uh, ordained in the Free Presbyterian Church, but when he returned to Scotland, they restricted him from ministering or even prayer in public because of his position that he thought it was lawful to use public transportation 
in order to attend corporate worship. You understand, like, ride the bus wasn't violating the Sabbath to ride the bus to go to church. Well, the Free Presbyterian Church said, no, that's a violation. And it was such an issue that they would not allow him to preach or teach and would not allow him to pray publicly. Similar to maybe what Mr. Pink experienced. The difference is that rather than isolating, he faithfully attended the services of the Free Presbyterian Church and mentioned how edified he was by the teaching and prayers of those with a fraction of his gifting and experience. I think this is the warning that Corinthians gives us of of the body not saying to someone else, I have no need of you. I have such a level of spirituality. You're a feeble member. How could you possibly minister to me? I get that spirit, unfortunately, in Mr. Pink uh, at this juncture of his life. But Mr. Murray, though he knows more than, he's forgotten more about theology than all of us in this room could put down in writing. And yet he was able to attend the services and participate in the teaching, the worship, and the prayers and be edified by it. I think that is a, uh, a sign of being edified by the body. It's a dangerous sign when we get to the place of, I have no need of you. I will pick up the pace here. I know it's cold outside and we're all nice and warm and we have padded chairs, but I'll uh, try not to go uh, too long here tonight. As you can tell, I have an appreciation for Mr. Pink. Um, But let me just scroll uh, through this. Let me draw some conclusions from his life and then I'll be done. So if we look at Arthur Pink's spirituality and we consider it negatively, um, I think the issue that Mr. Pink struggled with, and I, I, I know I have struggled with at periods of my life, is the tension between the ideal church and the real church. And what I mean by that is as a young uh, pastor, a young Christian, as you have a passion for the things of God and you study the scriptures, you start to form this ideal that it's going to be this and then you are involved in churches and guess what we're not that we're just real people sinners need help and so there's this distance between the two and that distance I can tell you as a pastor is your frustration level It's not much unlike a parent. You have this desire and aspiration for your children, and yet here they are. And so what am I going to do with that distance? Am I going to breathe fire into their lives every day? Or what is my expectation? How do I handle that? What I've learned in my failures is to acknowledge that distance. And then to acknowledge that could God move these people To that point, now. Yes. He could do that in an instant. But he isn't. So what do you want me to do? Well, if here's where we want to be, the ideal, and here's where we're at, 
What if we just meet the people here and try to get them to head that way? One step at a time. And I, as I embrace that, what I think is a simple concept, I notice my frustration level going way down. Now I'm just here. God can grant repentance to the knowledge of the truth. And I'm just meeting these people where they're at and trying to get them to take another step in that direction. And I noticed during that time that my appreciation for the people of the church went up. Because you begin to actually care for the people, love the people, enjoy the people, be edified by the people, and you're all working in this direction. <coughs> and it seems that Mr. Pink, unfortunately, uh, never learned that uh, trait. I had a money quote in here uh, where he said, you know what I mean by money quote, I don't get paid for it, it's just a good quote. Um, uh, he says, you know, I was never much of a pastor. <laughs> never much really in, engaged well with people. Uh, no kidding. Uh, you know, 12 years in isolation with people who don't even speak your language. Um, that, that would probably uh, be a good indicator to avoid the pastorate. Uh, I think um, one of the things that, another thing that... Um, that comes out of his life is one of the biographies was written by Richard Belcher is titled Born to Write. Here's a man who had a gifting to write and would have been a great blessing in the academy but he had an aversion to the academy. He didn't want to go to seminary. He had an aversion to that and that could have been a great uh, opportunity. You know, it's easy play armchair quarterback on somebody's life when you don't know all the details but it just seems like something that um, and what a what a blessing could a man like that have been if he'd had fellow elders where he didn't have to go it alone I mean wouldn't you like to have a guy who just lived in the basement and cranked out theological literature by the by the truckload that was edifying and and faithful I mean, he wasn't getting paid a lot. <laughs> you know, just pay for the postage so they can mail him out. I mean, uh, you read in one place where he basically, they lived off like, a, they'd get like one fish a day down at the market and basically pick off of that fish. And I mean, just lived very, very meagerly. Um, so certainly uh, personal discipline. But imagine if he had been uh, paired with a Barnabas or a Silas, or an encourager, or somebody who could have exhorted him. And it seems that, negatively, he focused exclusively on his strengths without cultivating his weaknesses. And I think that's a challenge that we have as Christians, that we like to only do the things we're good at. I don't like to do things that I'm no good at. That's no fun. I'd like to win and not lose, and to be terrible at things. And yet so much of the Christian life is acknowledging our strengths and then we can't just staff our weaknesses and hire somebody else to do it, but cultivating our weaknesses and developing them. There's no period of his life where you ever see that he had a mentor, either formally or informally, or ever had a healthy interaction 
uh, with a local church. But then, lastly, Arthur Pink's spirituality considered positively. His weaknesses are pretty evident, but so are his strengths. Um, in many ways, Mr. Pink was a pioneer in the resurgence of expository preaching. It's just he just went line upon line and just expounded the scriptures very faithfully. Uh, in his studies in the scriptures, he wrote commentaries on Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, the life of Elijah, the life of Elisha, the Gospel of John, which was over a thousand pages, First uh, John, and then many other uh, writings, but those were just the ones I could come up with off the top of my head. Also, his diligence and self-discipline uh, made him a self-taught theologian worthy of imitation. He had a strong aversion to self-exaltation. He thought it was very wrong to talk about yourself. What would he have done with Facebook? I mean, I think he would have lost his mind. He just thought that was the most offensive thing, part of his upbringing, to talk about yourself. Uh, he had a commitment to daily and rigorous labor in the scriptures. His daily reading consisted of ten chapters, eight in the Old Testament, two in the New Testament, a weekly portion of scripture that he studied every day. <clears throat> so he'd take off, okay, for this week I'm going to study this, as well as a single verse every day that he would memorize and meditate on. And we see the benefits of his ministry. The value, as I said, of studying different lives and different generations is how do we learn from their strengths and their weaknesses. Mr. Pink is a notable example as his strengths were very strong and his weaknesses were equally pronounced. And one of my favorite sayings is real men read pink. Amen. Well, let me pray. I've gone long tonight. God, we thank you for faithful men that we can read and learn from their lives, especially positively, but also negatively. We know that others are watching us and our children and grandchildren as they see the things that we do well. Help us to cultivate the things we do well and also address the things that we don't do well. I thank you for those that you have placed in my life <coughs> to strengthen weaknesses and failures in my character, in my habits, in my thinking, in my behavior, in my speech. I pray that we would continue pressing on toward the mark for the prize of the high calling that you have given us in Christ Jesus. I pray that we would not be self-righteous, that we would not isolate, but that we would be faithful, that you would bless this church with faithfulness, who would edify each other, who would be diligent in the scriptures, would fellowship with you in prayer and scripture reading and meditation, and would use that strength for your glory and the good of others. Help us. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.